Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing. Today, I have a great guest with me, Don Newton, is the uh, co-founder and chief operating officer of NetKey which is a firm that provides know your customer and anti-money laundering services, but for digital identities uh, that are basically um, focused on the blockchain. Uh, hi, Don, how are you? I am awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. It's yeah. great to meet you. Yes, same here. Before we start, I noticed that you uh, have a culinary degree from a, a, a school in Paris uh, and that you served under several Michelin-starred chefs so I have to ask you, did you make your own breakfast this morning? I did not. I don't eat breakfast at all. And if <laughs> I do eat on the rare occasions that I do eat breakfast, my husband makes it for me. That's the one thing I actually don't like doing is making <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> well, we'll get to this later, but I hope that you're still in the kitchen and cooking up a storm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like one of the things I really like to do is, um, you know, get together over uh, a meal. You know, I think that people, you know, relax when um, they have food. Um, it kind of takes takes the edge off, um, gets people more centered. Um, yeah, and, certainly. Also, if you're in someone's house and you're hanging around their yeah. kitchen as they're making the food, like what's a more that's there's not more natural spot really to be. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Did you so did you grow up in a family where somebody was always cooking? Is that where you got that from? Yeah, yeah. My mom was an absolutely fantastic cook, a fantastic cook. Um, the only thing, you know, funnily enough, is that she wanted to be alone in the kitchen to concentrate. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we were always told to like get out from under her feet. Um, bad enough that when I went to college, my dad um, you know, dropped off a care package um to me and um there were hot dogs inside it um, i don't know if you've ever noticed but if you actually look at a packet of hot dogs it does not tell you how to cook them oh really <laughs> so i called home um to find out like how do you cook these hot dogs and my my little brother was the only one home and um i'm like you know these hot dogs are defective they don't have instructions on them i don't know how to cook them and you know being of course my little brother he's like you idiot they're already cooked and I'm like, they are? Oh, okay. Well, you know, well, what do I do? And, and he's, and he's like, you just heat them up till they're warm. And I was just like, oh, oh, okay. So yeah, that, that was, that was uh, in college. So yeah, I really did not know uh, the first thing about really cooking when I left the house. And um, so, um, so I was going to say, well, I, I, I wondered if the allure for you of being like, you know, scuttled out of the kitchen by your mom made it something kind of verboten and sort of like something that you needed to, to figure out um, sort of like when, you know, you can't have something you wanted all the more. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, like, right, you've, I heard on other podcasts, you know, you, you've been to college, right? And you know, like, we just eat like, you know, junk, we've got like, you know, hot waters, and we're doing the like instant mac and cheese. And you go from, you know, having a mom who can cook incredibly well, to just having this garbage food at college. And I was like, this is atrocious. Like, I have to figure out how to like, you know, zip things up and, and make things better. And so it was the, the palette that she created for me mm. that just drove me to figure out, like, I need to learn how to cook. Yeah, that's great. Yep. And where were you growing up at that point? Oh, um, yeah, I was born in uh, New York in Yonkers. And then um, my family uh, moved us out. My mom wanted us to experience green grass and, and all that kind of stuff. So my parents uh, relocated us out to Connecticut. Okay. So I was in Danbury. So most of my family still to this day is all in Connecticut, New York. Yeah. New York is a tough place to raise kids. I was trying to do it for a while, but uh, yeah. much, much happier in California where there is a little bit of, of space. Yeah. Um, and then, so, okay. So you, <laughs> you, so you tend, you strike me as someone who just like, once you make a decision, you just go like 60 miles an hour, like foot pedal to the metal. Like you're sick of eating out of a box basically in college but, and you need to learn how to cook, but why not go to Le Cordon Bleu in, in Paris, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Why do, why do things, why do things to, to small degrees? Yeah, when I, when I decide to do something, I am a hundred percent all in laser focused. It's, it's all consuming. And so, um, you know, the, the culinary thing, you know, I did the tech thing, I did internet 1.0 and then was burnt out and said, you know, the, the famous, you know, James Bond words, you know, never say never again. But I said, never again on that tech. And, you know, my partner at the time was like, you know, you don't need to work anymore. You know, like we had hit it, you know? Um, and I was like, and that hadn't even, like that had not even crossed my mind. Like, oh my God, I actually, don't you know and so he's like why don't you go to culinary school you love cooking you love having these big parties but they stress you out and if you go to culinary school like you'll just know how to handle it and I said like that's a great idea and so you know I went to culinary school and then I was incredibly fortunate to you know land a stage over in Italy which just is a fancy way of saying you know uh, uh, unpaid, unpaid work, you know, but you do your stage as part of your curriculum for credits, yeah. you know? So I went and did, um, my stage over in Italy. And then since then, you know, whenever we go on vacations, I kind of, you know, try to set it up that I can go and work for chefs all over. And what I really like doing is finding mom and pop places, mm. Um, you know, and walking in and seeing, you know, like bringing my knife roll and figuring out how to say in their language, you know, we'll work for free for X weeks, you know, and they love that. And then you learn firsthand, you know, you know, watching and doing. So yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's an incredible, it's incredible experience. Yeah, I, I can't even. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, do you have a certain cuisine that you prefer or one that you're better at? hundred percent. So, um, you know, of course, you know, working in like the Michelin stars doing like really high end Italian, really high end French, but, um, you know, what I like to cook at home is a uh, Cajun Creole, you know, being yeah. like that, that Louisiana cooking, it like sticks in your belly. It's got this warmth, you know, you just feel like when you eat that food, at least to me that you're like wrapping yourself in a cozy blanket and someone's giving you a hug. How did and a girl from Connecticut fall in love with uh, the Cajun? 
um, traveling, you know, I really love to, I love to travel. I went to um, actually early internet days, um, went to a conference um, called the ISP, ISPC um, or ISPF, Internet Service Providers Forum. And um, it was down in New Orleans yeah. and I just ate and ate and ate. And even then I would always find the mom and pop shops to get, you know, I was never one for the big chain restaurants anyway. And just finding out like, where are the locals eating, yeah. you know, and ask the locals where they eat. And that's like, that's the best thing you can do. Ask locals where they eat, you know, don't go to the concierge desk. They're, they're going to tell you, you know, I mean, it's fine. What they're going to recommend is going to, you know, is going to be great. But if you want a real authentic experience, like find the locals and ask them where they go to eat and where they think the best food is, yeah. and they will never steer you wrong. Totally agree. Um, I, I worked in, in restaurants through college, put myself through college a little bit that way. So I, I know the oh, different, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was a waiter and I, so I know the back, you know, I know the kitchen, I know all the different like forces and how it, it can get a little crazy. The, the, there's the front of the house, you know, the, the, the cooks, the, the prep cooks, the, the dishwashers, the waiters, the servers. Did you, um, how did you find that as a woman? Was it ever like overwhelming or is that something you like about it or how, how was that for you? Fascinating story. <laughs> um, so, you know, I too did like when I was younger, younger, I was a bus girl and a waitress and then bartender, yeah. you know, and then wound up going into the, you know, back of the house later in life. So um, I was working for a um, woman who was a, a lesbian who had a, a restaurant and I was um, third in line, basically, you know, there's the, there's the executive chef, her, the sous chef, and then me. And the sous chef wanted to go on vacation and she wanted to go on vacation at the same time, which meant that I was gonna have to go up into her position yeah. and I was gonna wind up, like I was gonna wind up running grill. Now, that is one of the things that's still um, in the culinary world that is incredibly male dominated. Women are in the kitchens, you know, all the time now in various positions, but grill is still male dominated. And it was really funny because she turned to him and I was standing right there and she's like, well, we both can't go on the same at the same time because Dawn would be on grill. And she's a, and I'm like, oh my God, don't you dare say I'm a girl. Don't <laughs> you dare say because I'm a girl. And she's like, oh my God, I was going to, I was going to say it. I was, I was. She's like, holy crap. Like it's always so ingrained in us. And we laughed, you know, it was, it was a really big, it was a really big, big chuckle. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, the restaurant business is still um, one of the last, uh, uh, you know, standing um, somewhat, you know, sexist uh, um, organizations. And um, you just, you know, you have a tough skin, you find the right people to work for or work with, or you take it head on. And I'm just used to my, my dad brought me up. I really didn't realize that I like that there was that difference. Because like when my dad, when we were growing up, my dad was a welder, right? My family were all working class. And, you know, so my dad had me in the garage with my brother right alongside him, learning how to cut wood, learning how to weld, doing all these things that I just didn't think anything of it. That's great. And so, yeah. So it was great. It was pretty funny. I enjoyed it. And that, and that really is like now, you know, you know, and I would say probably in the past, like, you know, decade ish, maybe 15 years, it's dialing down, you know, and, and women are starting to, you know, really be able to flourish and, and thrive in the restaurant industry, which is great to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm sad to say, I think I'm addicted to cooking shows. It's kind of like my happy place. I, I, um, food network, the cooking channel, 
like that's pretty much where I go to. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, but let's go back a little bit to what you said. Um, so early on, you were sort of in Web One, um, sort of, and, but then I guess it left a really bad taste in your mouth, and you said never again. What What were you doing back then? Um, yeah, it wasn't. You know, what? it wasn't a bad taste in my mouth. It was burnout. You know, we were we wound up being so successful. So I started out um, working at Microcom. Um, which was a modem manufacturer, you know, and they made uh, a Relay Gold, which was like the first, um, one of the first software applications that would connect computer to computer so that like I could remote take over your machine, Okay. Yeah. you know, and do that kind of thing. And then they had Relay Gold, which the US government was using and UPS was using, which was running mainframes so that, you know, developers, if they were home, could take their, well, then it was desktop, there weren't laptops, you know, desktop and log in to the actual mainframe systems and be able to make changes from, you know, wherever they were kind of thing. Um, so, um, you know, it went from Microcom to Interaccess, which was a regional ISP out of Chicago, and then went to Net Zero. And Net Zero, you know, they had this crazy idea that the internet should be free. And yeah. back then, you know, AOL was charging people $30 a month for dial up. Like it was it, that, and that was incredibly expensive back in the day because people don't realize like nowadays, you know, the phone, you know, your phone bill back then all in was only like 20 bucks. So to have something that costs, you know, 50% more than that was like, yeah. holy cow. Um, so when I started at Net Zero, I walked in as industry hire number two. And there were, you know, four people working in support on uh, within three years time, we IPO'd, you know, unicorn IPO, billion dollar valuation. I wound up having over a thousand people reporting into me. I scaled wow. living daylights out of it. I, you know, was able to compete. Like, mind you, we came late, you know, we, we Facebooked their MySpace kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and um, and so we, you know, there was AOL, there was Microsoft. We were taking on titans yeah. of of industry, and you know, we became one of the you know largest ISPs really fast. How did they and, make money if they're not charging anybody? Where was the where's the fee coming? Uh, from? Well, the same way it is today. Now it was ad sales. Yeah. You know, they wound up having a little banner that went either across the top of your screen, about, a, you know, about a, a, a three quarters of an inch or the bottom of your screen. And it ran ads, you know, oh, okay. they had ads from like Best Buy, Victoria's Secret bought ads. That was that was hilarious. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, it was one of the first it was the for like the first Internet advertising in, in that way inside of an ISP. And that carried it like that. That covered the expense where AOL was charging 30 bucks. And so, yeah. It's pretty interesting. And had you always had like a technical sort of acumen or where did that come from? Like, where did, were you uh, like typical nerd as a kid on the computer a lot or how, how, no, how did because, you get into it? No, because if you think about it, like early days, you know, like people, at least, you know, working class people, you know, a, you know, affording a computer and they were just coming out, you know, um, you know Atari came out when I was yeah. a kid. Right. Yeah, yeah. I got Atari so, for Christmas one year. Yeah, yeah, it was a big deal, Very right? Excited. And um, so um, no, but like my dad was a steam fitter and um, you know, always had that, you know, technical acumen and we knew how to, you know, build things. He had me in the garage right alongside my brother, you know, building things with wood, um, welding taught yeah. me how to weld, put things together that way. And you, back then you self-repaired. If you were from like a working class family and the vacuum cleaner broke, you 
took it apart and figured out what was broken and then you put it back together you know you bought the belt or whatever was needed and so yeah so that just came naturally and then you know i i fell into um you know the the internet thing doing like the old bbs's uh -huh. the, bullet, the bulletin boards and yeah, communicating right. with people and and usenet and i was just fascinated by it i mean imagine i mean now everybody you know takes it for granted but imagine talking to somebody that's literally on the other side of the world yeah you know it was amazing i mean amazing yeah i still remember that feeling from like <laughs> aol chat or or whatever yeah. yeah it was yeah it was something um so then okay culinary school you can't you burn out from that just because like yeah. obviously it just went scaling was rough yeah yeah you you scaled it like a thousand fold so I go to culinary school that sounds great and then how do you like were you just missing something um on the culinary side or how did what, what happened next where you kind of got back into the tech yeah so um my uh uh partner um was still working in tech and he went to a Bitcoin conference and came home and was super excited. And I'm like, I'm so glad that you're so excited. It's so good for you, good for you, good for you. And he's like, you know, into it, into it for a couple months. And he's like, listen, we need to start a business. And I'm like, what year, oh, are, we, no. what year are we in here? <clears throat> um, this is 2013. This okay. is 2013, That's you know, early rather, for rather early, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. like, this thing is going to be great. And I'm like, totally awesome. I'm glad you think this thing is going to be great. And then, um, you know, about three months, he's, you know, researching and everything. And he's like, we need, we need to start a business. And I'm like, oh no, there's no way. There's no way there. That's, that's nice. That's a, that's a you thing. That is not a, a we thing. And he's like, no, 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 no. You've got to read this white paper. You've got to read this white paper. And um, I'm like, you know, nah, nah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And finally I do, I sit down and read it and I'm reading it and I'm just muttering the F word, <laughs> F, 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 F. And he's like, what, what, what? And I'm just not saying anything, I'm just like, F, 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 F. And he's like, what, what, what? And I'm like, damn it. We need to start a business. You have to do this. <laughs> like I told you never again. And I was just like, and I really, I felt, I remember Sean Connery being on, I think it was David Letterman and talking about how, you know, he had said never again, Yeah. you know, and how they came back to him and he was just like, damn it. And I just, I, I just recalled that, that conversation of that back and forth. And I was like, well, here we are. And I agreed. I agreed. So, so what was, was it about Bitcoin that really kind of just got you? from the beginning? Um, you know, so in the early internet days, the, the passion for me was that it was going to take information that by and large, you know, only the people that could afford to go to college or could afford to go into like these big industries that with real credentials had access to this information, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I believed, and it you know turned out to be true, right? That that the internet was going to democratize information. It was going to create you know um, somewhat equitable access. We're still working towards that, you know. But I mean, by and large, equitable access to information. Yeah. And so you know, I went into that because it was going to be a transformative technology, and then I could see that you know Bitcoin was going to be 
the same thing. You know, it had the potential to be the same thing, except for rather than democratizing information, it was going to be able to democratize finance and give anyone in the world, as long as they had, you know, a cell phone internet connection, access to a financial system where previously they had been, you know, locked out or priced out of participating. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I wish DeFi stood for democratized finance rather than mm -hmm. decentralized. I think it's a lot, it's a much more kind of what the, what the, at the core, what it really is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That would actually be a better name for it, right? Yeah. So did you then, the, the business idea, was there a bit, was there an idea or was it just like, we've got to do something and you kind of took that idea of like this democratization of money and of finance and, and you wanted to kind of put your energy into that part of it? Right. So, you know, based on what myself and my co-founder are good at, um, we didn't want to focus on what um, Bitcoin could do, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's where other people's strengths are. What we wanted to focus on were was what are the problems that Bitcoin is going to have, you know? And that for us, you know, identity was one of the things that really stuck out um, as something that, um, you know, Bitcoin, uh, then blockchain, you know, then digital currency, then Bitcoin again, right, was going to, um, you know, um, encounter issues with. Let's, issues let's dive identity. into that a little bit. What do you mean, like, um, to help us understand the, the connection between identity and, and Bitcoin and what the point, the pain point there might be or points? Right. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, non-custodial wallets, you know, I'm sure the people that listen to this podcast, right, you are an island unto yourself. You download the software. You are 100% in control of your keys. Yeah. You know, you're 100% in control of your money. It's like um, a personal if, wallet. Yeah, that's yeah, what I like to call right. it. You know, it's a personal wallet. If you, if you lose your wallet on the street, right, there's no recourse. The cash that was inside that wallet is gone, you know. Um, there's, there's no way for you to really recover it. Um, but then there's custodial wallets, you know, and custodial wallets are, you know, a place that, you know, where there is a custodian, there's somebody that, you know, if you, if you lose your, if you lose your, you know, password, that kind of thing, there's ways that you can prove who you are. So what they do is, you know, their model is, is that you KYC, you know, know your customer with them, you prove that you're you, you know, or I have to prove that I'm me. And then if, you know, I'm, you know, lost my, my login, my password, whatever, I can go to their tech support, prove that I'm indeed me and get right. and reaccess my Bitcoin. And so, you know, so I somebody think that, like Coinbase, if you yeah, have somebody like Coinbase, Coinbase. Good example, right. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. there's people who, you know, I, I kind of like the idea that, you know, if, if Bitcoin is for everyone, we take all comers. And there may be people that, you know, aren't comfortable with holding their own keys. Like, you know, I always tell people like, you know, I, I would not, I would not want to give my mom, right? Like, I mean, my mom would not, and my mom wouldn't want it. My mom wouldn't want, um, you know, a, a non-custodial, you know, a self-hosted wallet, yeah. you know, because she, I mean, she loses passwords. She forgets things. She doesn't know how to use like, you know, one password, et cetera. So that's for, so what, you know, so a, a custodial wallet is something that's good for her and other people. And, and so like you were saying, the know your customer is a huge aspect of that. It goes back to the banking laws. Uh, I think it, is it part of the Bank Secrecy Act? It is. And, it is. You're a hundred percent correct. It is yeah. part of the Bank Secrecy Act. And then 
because obviously if you're a financial institution like a bank, you don't want to get access to your vast services that you really can't do as a, as a retail person, um, you know, without knowing who you are. So you're not like some, I don't know, gang leader or something, you know? So, so yeah, it's a, it's a foundation of, of um, finance. And also there's also the anti-money laundering aspect here as well. Right. So yep. the government wants businesses, um, especially financial institutions to do as much as possible to make sure that people aren't laundering funds through whatever they're claiming to be like um, legitimate um, revenue producers. So um, what are the, so now, the, but you're right, like if, and, and if one of the things that people latched onto with Bitcoin and digital currency in general very quickly was, this is a way for people who don't have a bank account, who are unbanked to get access to finance, right? To, to value. Okay. But if you don't have a bank account, you probably don't have the right kind of like um, identification, you know, ID to actually like, so th there's, there's a lot of issues there. Could you talk a little bit about that and what you found? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is something that people, that most people do think, um, but really uh, what is, what is preventing people from participating in the mainstream, uh, you know, banking system, the traditional banking system are all the fees, Right. And that, that is set up as a barrier to entry. If you have $100,000 in your bank account, right? You pay nothing and they give you a whole bunch of perks where if you're running like a 10 or a $20 balance, they're charging you $30 for every bounce check and you can quickly run into the negative, you know? And so, um, you know, we wound up um, at my company, we wound up partnering with um, uh, the government of El Salvador um, after they did the initial Chivo launch, they had some problems, you know, they had identity theft and, and all of those kind of things. And we came in, um, you know, after the fact to help, you know, tighten everything up. And there, you know, 4 million adults wound up getting on the system and getting $30 in, in Bitcoin as an incentive. And of those, 75% of them never had a bank account, wow. had never held a balance inside um you know a, a financial account and so for the first time in their lives you know they had an account you know with a a positive balance and so you know and they had id they had identity you know so a lot of the a lot of countries have like a national id um you know or you know so it, it's not it's not about you know identity um just alone right it's about the fact that these institutions are set up to charge high rates to low balance people yeah you know and so it's it's just a barrier and so that was a huge win for us early days like 20 you know 2015 the slogan was you know we're going to bank the unbanked we're going to bank the unbanked i i can still i consider these people still un, unbanked because they're not banked in the traditional you know in 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 uh, the traditional system um but they're financed you know they have access now and can save all that money in remittances yeah and you'd mentioned um one thing the el salvadoran government did uh, president bukele there is he he gave pretty much everybody who opened a Chiva wallet, $30 in Bitcoin, it's called an airdrop. Yep. But you, so you, from a security site, like, or um, I know your customer kind of uh, point of view, that's a big risk because you, you need to stop people from opening like six or seven different wallets, right? So that they, they, they get the $30 times seven. So, right. how, so how do you, like, how did you come into that? And what did you have to do to, to, to help ensure that that wasn't happening? Yeah. 
Great, great, great question. So, um, you know, uh, early, early days, um, you know, um, we've had clients in the past that do airdrops that have, um, you know, uh, gotten hit with, you know, mass amount of fraud, right? Because if you're a hacker, right, you're, you're smart, and you know what you're doing, you can easily create, a, you know, a thousand, you know, unique personas and come in and just bang that system like nobody's business and at $30 a pop you're like raking it in really fast you know um and it very quickly escalates because you know you tell your other friends and then everybody's like pounding pounding at the system so um you know we can't we can't give away our our secret sauce but we we have a way to stop that fraud you know dead in its tracks so that um, you know you don't wind up getting getting pounded with with all of this all of this fraud, and one of the things I do think it's important for the community to know, um, and the community to focus on is that you know this is not a Bitcoin problem and this is not a crypto problem and you know it's it's being thought of in that way. But um, you know, it missed with all the news coming out. It's hard to, for everybody to keep track. But you know, PayPal got hit with millions of fraudulent accounts because they were doing an incentive. They got hit with you know over a million fraudulent accounts got created, and I believe the number was that they lost forty mil. Wow. 40 mil. And so, you know, we do not have a, a crypto problem. We have a fraudster problem. Yeah. You know, and that I think is the thing that everybody needs to realize is that, you know, I mean, because PayPal, their team is incredibly well-funded, incredibly smart. You know, they were pioneers in, in digital identity, in, you know, basically remote, you know, no brick and mortar banking, you know, essentially. And, you know, if they can get hit, certainly you know like an nft startup is yeah. going to get hit because that's been all over the you know press is all this you know nft fraud so it's definitely a problem that you know we need to address as an industry but it's not specific to our industry yeah it, it's interesting that a lot of critics of crypto seem to act as though it's the only thing you know that, that where these problems exist and of course it reflects the problems in, in, in all the other parts of society and, and finance. Um, 100%. You mentioned some of the problems with Achievo Wallet early on. Um, were you brought in when Alpha Point came in to sort of like- Yeah, we were brought in before Alpha Point and then Alpha Point came in right after us. And then we just recently announced, even though we came in separately, we work incredibly well together. So at BTC Miami, um, we did a whole talk about, you know, the Chivo launch and what it means for Bitcoin. And then one of the things we announced is that we are partnering together to bring, you know, other countries online, you know, either in the same way or in a similar way to what El Salvador did. Are those something you can talk about publicly or is that? Yeah, uh, yeah like, absolutely. Which countries are, are, are maybe next? Oh, yeah, with that. No, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying there. Um, you know, I think what you're going, you know, all I can say is that, you know, in that regard, I think you're going to see Latin America as a whole um, making a, a push towards this um, because there's so many benefits for them. You know, if you, um, okay, like if we take El Salvador, um, you're talking about something that can change the directory of an, of a, sorry, the direction, not the directory, change the direction of an entire nation. So um, go back to um, early internet days, right? 
Singapore had a 70% poverty rate back then. Mm. And their leaders understood that the internet was going to be huge. And so they took what money they had and what money they were able to get, you know, in loans, et cetera. And they invested in internet infrastructure and education. And now look at where they are today. If you are going to build a business or open an office, you know, in Asia with, you know, that that's, you know, a technology, you're going to do it in Singapore by by and large. Right. And so they put themselves on the map by seeing, you know, where a technology was going to go and how critical it was going to be to the future of the world. And they they banked on being all in. And so, you know, and the, and the, the whole country saw a, a huge, incredible upside. If you look at the, you know, if you look at their GDP from then till now, you see that like classic hockey stick that VCs want to see, Yeah. you know? And so I think Latin America sees a lot of upside, you know, for their citizens, for their country as a whole, not only just in saving for, um, you know, remittance. Yes, that's huge. If you think about it, like Western Union fact, 12 USD is charged on every hundred, Yeah, you know? So now with Bitcoin, instead of somebody getting $88, if you send it to them, they're getting a hundred and that's a huge difference um, down there. And so, um, you know, I think you're going to see Latin America go and focus on that, not only just for the remittance, but for, you know, if they can go and become the center, you know, of of the Bitcoin world, similar to how Singapore became the hub for uh, um, you know internet in Asia, um, it, it's a smart model. It's an incredible. Yeah, that's model. that's fascinating. I've I've been doing a lot of reporting on El Salvador recently um, uh, about oh. Bitcoin Beach, and and I, I find it really fascinating um, that one thing that really helped spread adoption there was the pandemic um, because everybody was locked down, <clears throat> and so. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and if people don't know this in El Salvador, it was martial law. Like if you left your house, you could be arrested by the army and people were being arrested. So um, in these small villages, you know, older people, like how do they get their groceries and, and like, what are they supposed to do to get supplies? And so Bitcoin was there in El, Z- El Zante and all of a sudden you had, you know, older couples on their phone, like communicating with the, the store in town who took Bitcoin and, and they'd buy their groceries and then have like little boys would run them to the, you know, deliver them. And so it's been, it's been really fascinating to, to, to learn about all these like small things of where you, you couldn't even think of like five or 10 years before that of like this, there's, there's going to be a digital currency economy in this little surf town in El Salvador that <laughs> then became the model for the rest of El Salvador. Um, and then it's also been uh, very interesting I think you touched on it a little bit, but I think it's giving people hope um, that that the money that they have can potentially go up in value for once. You know, it it is risky, of course, with the downsides. But if you look at Bitcoin over time, it goes up. Um, And so that hope element was not there. And and speaking to a lot of people down there, I think that that's been something that that might be underappreciated, but that is now really giving people a reason to look forward to the future. Right. A hundred percent. One, one, you should come down. 
like when I go down, like let's let's set up something. You can come down and like see. Have you been yet? No, I have not. Yeah, you I should really come like down, it. and we'll like take you. The Bitcoin Beach guys are amazing. I mean, you're already talking to them, right? And and come down and like hang out with everybody and see that energy. You are a hundred percent on the money in reading it, you know, through the communications. But there's incredible hope. We have um, our chief marketing officer um, is from El Salvador, and you know she wrote um, something for another country that we're speaking with and talking about how the the people are energized because they're seeing you know businesses like ours go down there yeah. and hire citizens of El Salvador you know and doing training i was just at um paxful opened up uh, la casa de bitcoin um, in the city of El Salvador, and they had me come in and speak and teach a you know building on blockchain class. Um, and one of our uh, you know employees, also from El Salvador, my uh, a technical support guy, you know went with me, and you know I spoke in because I said, oh my god, sorry, English like right, I don't speak Spanish, but I went and talked to you know a room full of women who were all over the map in age. You know, there were there were people there that were, you know, right, right in high school. And then there were women there in their 60s. And it was for International Women's Month. Yeah. And like they were there to learn about, you know, blockchain, Bitcoin, how it worked. They then broke out into groups and were talking about, you know, different ways that, you know, a blockchain could be used in El Salvador. And they like won prizes, you know. And uh, it was really, it was really pretty empowering. So there's hope, right? Because they're seeing the tourism, they're seeing the businesses being built, they're seeing opportunities, not just with the $12 savings on a hundred, but in, you know, creating jobs, creating tourism, you know, there's, there's so much energy there and so much hope. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's really great to see. Um, so speaking of that sort of not philanthropy, but you have been involved in philanthropy on in, in the digital world as well. Um, you're on the board at BitGive, which yeah. I believe was the first uh, nonprofit that facilitated like Bitcoin donations, right? To hundred percent to charity. Yeah, um, I just did a story uh, today actually because you know tax day was Monday, and the like I was talking to somebody at the um, the, the giving block, and mm -hmm. the numbers mm -hmm. there are just astounding um the year on year that the, the amount of donations that they've got went up 1500 percent like to now almost 70 million dollars and it's still just like the hockey stick effect um it's it's a what what do you think about like do you have any thoughts on that or what what do you see as the future there um in terms of philanthropy and and digital assets yeah i think that um you know that's another uh opportunity where um, everything can just incredibly open up. Um, you know, not only, I mean, one, you know, we all know that there are, that there are crypto rich, right? And um, it's a good way to, you know, offset your money um, that you've got to give the, the tax man, right? By, by doing donations. And what better way, right, is like, you know, it, early days, you know, I was really thankful, um, you know, that, that Connie went and created, you know, BitGive, because it was kind of, you know, it, it didn't make sense that, you know, you made your money in crypto, and then you had to turn around and, and give your donations out in, in fiat. Yeah. You know, and so she pioneered. Um, you're going to lose know. around 30%, right? Yeah. Of whatever you sell to cash to capital Correct. gains tax, federal, state taxes. 
Correct. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly that. You know, it's like it's like it's like a a double hit. So it was great to be able to, you know, take your take your Bitcoin and, you know, give it to, you know, BitGive and have Connie then in turn be able to give it to, you know, all of these fantastic, you know, nonprofits worldwide, you know. Um, And I think that we'll see, you know, there's a lot of things that can change, um, you know, in philanthropy, Uh, you know, one of the things that um, she created at BitGive with the team is GiveTrack. And, um, you know, it's basically blockchain, Bitcoin, Bitcoin blockchain, where you can see your money at work. And I think a lot of that for people who donate, um, they want to feel a part of it and like see the story. And so imagine that, you know, when we did the water project, like, you know, you know, how many, how many bricks you, you purchased, you know, for them to then build the well, you know, for the girls school kind of thing. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, watching, watching your philanthropy work inspires people to give more. Yeah. You know, and so I think that it's going to be a really interesting. It doesn't surprise me at all that the donations have gone up that much. I think that that's incredibly fantastic. And I can't wait to see, um, you know, where that future will lead for us, you know, in, in the philanthropic arena. One thing I learned by doing this story that I thought was really cool is um, NFTs are more and more um, allocating part of their sales to charities. And as you might know, with an NFT, there's, there's a royalty possibility there where if like, you know, I'm an artist and I sell my NFT for a thousand dollars and then somebody sells it for a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to, I can embed, you know, a little bit of a percentage that I get every time there's a resale and people are pegging those, those royalty resales to charities. So it's, it's this whole new, <laughs> right? know, it's like one of those things where you're just like, oh man, those poor people that don't get crypto because it's so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it you, is, right? You, you never think, think that, of this thing like that, that would never happen in a, in a traditional charity kind of way, right? But here, so, it, and then like it's, he, they were saying at the giving block that like 20 to $30 million of their donations have come through this sort of like NFT focused uh, application, which, um, right. yeah, I just found and fascinating. And think about that we don't know, right? Like think about when you look at, you know, um, what is it, Sotheby's? You know, when you go and auction this stuff up yeah. or off, you know, it it gains and gains and gains in value, yeah. you know? And you see, I mean, we, we've got massive historical data on that. Think about like the first toys that, you know, you bought from like Star Trek or Star Wars kind of thing and, you know, bought them at, you know, Target or Toys R Us and then what they're worth today if they're still, you know, in the box, et cetera. And so NF, NFTs, right? You buy them now and like you're saying, they're giving, they've allocated a set percentage. Yeah. So something that sold for, you know, a hundred thousand can go and sell for, you know, 500,000, a million, five million. That is literally the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yep. That, that needs to be uh, trademarked right there for this or something. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Have at it, people, literally, have at literally it. Literally, the gift yep. that keeps on giving. <laughs> yep. uh, it's, it's got a better ring to it than non-fungible token anyway. So, um, <laughs> True. So what is, um, as you can tell, I'm on the, the, the nomenclature stuff. I think it needs to change. Yeah. I think it needs to get a little softer and more, more uh, fuzzy. Um, what's so what's next for netkey like what where are you guys what are you excited about or what's like uh, are there new frontiers that you want to get into or how are things going there 
Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I'm really excited. So I'm, you know, people, people make the assumption that like, you know, we're in the identity space and, um, you know, so we're like anti-privacy, all that kind of thing. I, I am a huge privacy nerd. Um, you know, uh, I dressed up as the, uh, like I dressed up as the, um, Statue of Liberty <laughs> and my husband dressed up as uncle Sam put me in chains. I had the makeup on and everything. And we went out on a restore the fourth protest. Um, you know, and what we did find out is the media loves to stick a microphone to the people that are dressed up because they, you know, they think that it's going to be, you know, uh, really, really interesting. So it was great to be able to say, um, you know, on on camera and mic'd that, you know, the prison program in the US, um, you know, isn't okay. And, you know, it, it's it's directly in, in violation of, of the Fourth so Amendment. So tell people if they don't know what PRISM is, tell them what that is. Oh, the PRISM program is a U.S. government program um, that is, you know, essentially um, spying on the American people uh, and getting, you know, access to our, our digital communications. Is that back um, to the NSA from, kind of stuff? Yeah, like it's, it's the NSA Snowden. program. Yeah, yeah, so that's exactly the NSA. Mm -hmm. So now they mostly call it the NSA program. But the actual name of the program is called PRISM. Yeah. And so that's exactly it. It's the NSA program. And, you know, I, you know, I really believe in subpoenas. You know, um, if you if the government needs access to my information because they think I'm a bad actor or your information because they think you're a bad actor, then you file you follow the Constitution. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you file a subpoena. And um, so, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is the possibility, you know, the genuine possibility that we're going to be able to own our own identity. You know, the EU is starting to, you know, move, move the needle forward on, you know, having us have the right to be forgotten. So I'm really interested in self-sovereign digital identity. You know, once, once you have like who you are, um, I, I would like to see where, um, you know, and this is the future, right? The, the Bank Secrecy Act needs to change. We need a lot of laws to change all over the world. Right. But imagine if I go somewhere, right? Now I'm older, but let's just pretend I'm, you know, 22. Um, wouldn't it be great if I showed up at a bar and rather than handing over my ID, which has got my name, my home address, you know, all of this personal information that I'm sorry, the bouncer really shouldn't have access to. How about there's just a certificate that I have on my phone that says Dawn is over 21 and there's a face match to that certificate that shows that, you know, I'm me yeah. and that's it. That's all they get is I'm over 21 and here's my face. Yes, I'm the person who this certificate belongs to. And then we control who we want to give the information to and have the right to be forgotten. How do you get around the problem here that to do that, you need it to be a decentralized function. And what we've relied on in the past for identity is centralized functions, whether it's a passport or a driver's license. How, how, is, um, how do you foresee that same level of authority being um, bestowed in a decentralized world when it's, it's, you know, there's the convenience factor of the centralized authority for that reason, right? How do you like, 100%. is that, is that an issue for you or has that been solved? I, I, that's something that's always kind of stuck in my mind that, that makes this one kind of tricky. 
Right. So, you know, it is right. I mean, when you go and, and, you know, trying to tackle these huge problems, it is incredibly complex, you know, and it's never, it's never, you know, that simple. Because like for your example, a birth certificate from the government would be the thing that was maybe the basis of that, like certificate, right? Right. And how many people don't have those? I mean, there are people in the world that don't have those. So one of the things, you know, that like I, uh, you know, an example that at least resonates for me is that, you know, the Red Cross lost millions of dollars that were supposed to go to Haiti, right? And, And Haiti, by and large, doesn't have, you know, identity. You know, there's not. So like, so a a service like NetKey, we, we cannot at this juncture help them, right? Um, but wouldn't it be more efficient if, you know, you and I could go and donate Bitcoin, you know, directly to those people, right? That yeah. the, the actual Haitians that are there. And so, you know, things, you know, we've got to start thinking outside of the box of like, how can you ID someone without ID, you know? And one of the things that, you know, um, uh, resonated at least for me was that, you know, doctors without borders are there, you know, and they are literally the boots on the ground. They are physically there. They are, you know, with the people that are going through, um, you know, the, the, you know, hurricane or the typhoon or whatever natural disaster or, you know, government disaster, you know, that has, has happened. And, um, you know, so for me, like they can vouch, right? If they're physically there, they can turn around and say that I know this person and I know that person and I know this person and I know that person. And then you and I can decide if that's good enough. Like it would be good enough for me. You know, that would be good enough for me that they say, okay, the doctors without borders is telling me, you know, to send it to this guy or this woman, you know, then fine. I don't need to go through the red cross. I'll just go and send my Bitcoin directly to this woman because, you know, Doctors Without Borders said, okay. So I think we've got to start thinking about, you know, other other ways to vouch for people that don't have this traditional identity that, um, you know, the other systems require. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. <clears throat> yeah. I hope, I, yeah. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, and I, and I applaud the people that are dedicating their, their time to that into, into figuring that out um, because it, it, it is a incredibly uh, massive problem to solve for. Yeah, yeah. Well, Don, thank you so much for being here. And, and this has been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, so this is Don Newton. She is the co-founder and COO of NetKey. Uh, I'll put a bunch of links down in the show notes uh, where you can find her on Twitter or, or other places uh, and NetKey's website. And um, Don, so thank you again and, and uh, hope to see you in person sometime. Yeah, absolutely. It was super nice meeting you. I had a great time. Thanks okay. for thanks for the interview. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D E C E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O and on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.